Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Running in Place podcast, the Gen X take on a millennial world. My name is Jack Rolf, and with me tonight from his nuclear-powered submarine is... Craig Shepard. Thank you for joining us this evening. You had to come up through the Arctic shelf to join us, and I really do appreciate that. You wouldn't think the internet would be that good from uh, the Arctic Circle, but as it turns out, it really is. We have excellent antennas that we pop above the ice from time to time. Excellent. Actually, I'm, I'm an antenna nerd. I would love to know what kind of antennas those are. Um, you know, we had a lot of good comments from our, our last episode. We got a lot of downloads. Uh, apparently, people like porn. We got some really nice compliments. So who would have thunk it? That's not surprising. Something about the continuation of the species that gets just people kind of excited. Uh, you know, I think actually just adding porn to the title of anything is probably a good marketing strategy. It could save some of the retailers that we're talking about here. You know, ladies and gentlemen, tonight's episode is going to be about the retail apocalypse and porn. So I'm, I'm sure we'll find some way to shoehorn that in now. Well, that might be our strategy for getting more downloads is to have shoehorn porn into every title. It's just a thought. <laughs> All right, I'm totally doing that. I'm going to find a way to name this episode after porn. Um, or some creepy double entendre. Wait a minute, did I the say creepy? The retail of porn calypse. The retail of porn calypse. That's it. You just nailed it. You know, it's funny, though, because we were that's the topic of the, tonight's show has been the topic of the news lately is the retail apocalypse because impending doom because it can't just be, hey, people, uh, the economy's changing and stores are closing. It's got to be the retail apocalypse, um, you know, which is maybe overselling it, just maybe a hint. Uh, but that's OK. People kind of do that. And um, things are really I mean, the the economy is changing and it's touching all kinds of things because that's what the economy does. The economy is always evolving and changing and things are happening. And uh, as, as I was thinking about this, I got to thinking about what it used to be like for our parents versus, of course, our kids or the, the millennials that follow us. You know, shopping was not entertainment for at least for our grandparents. I mean, you had your shirts, you had four or five shirts, you had four or five pants, and that's what you had. And you didn't go shopping for fun on the weekend. And I don't know about your mom, but my mom, shopping was probably her primary form of entertainment. She loved it. And it was what she did. And that was definitely different than her mother, for example. What about what about with your family? Well, I don't I don't know that I can compare to my parents' approach to their parents' approach. I don't I don't really know how it was like i mean i've heard some stories from my like great grandmother of like the ice guy coming around but that's that's which isn't really doesn't really dovetail to uh to retail shopping but uh but i i think we probably had similar experiences growing up in that um the our parents or our mother in particular dragging us along on shopping days to various stores for various things um, was certainly a tradition. And, and while I suspect that my mom enjoyed it, I, my memory is that it, she was usually in a bad mood on those days. I don't know if it was because of spending money or because I wasn't behaving, but uh, it was I, because I she was I, with you. It was I'm sure it was because she was with me, but I, I don't remember those days fondly or maybe, maybe my memories are also colored by my, undoubted boredom during those times. You know, it's funny. I look back on uh, going to the mall because it was, it was like, uh, it was like going to church for my mom. It was going to the mall on uh, typically Saturday morning, but occasionally Sunday or sometimes both. But uh, I would always get 
I was bribed. That's what I mean. That it's just absolutely what it comes down to. Because my dad wanted me out of the house. Who knows what my brother was doing? So I would get like six bucks, and because six bucks would buy you a paperback, and I would read that between that Saturday and the next Saturday. And so for me, it was great. I loved it. I got out of the house. I didn't really care for the mall that much because it was just it was the same thing week after week. But I got a new book. And uh, I remember when I was in college, I went to the used bookstore and dumped off, hun- I mean, literally hundreds of paperbacks. And the guy's like, you know, I'm, I'm never going to give you credits in here. You'd bankrupt me. I'm like, just take them. I don't want them. But, no um, you know, I remember um, in the town that I grew up in, which was, you know, kind of the industrial Midwestern town, there was still a downtown that had the actual department store in it. And then when I was a kid, the mall, the shopping mall opened and it just destroyed the downtown. The, the downtown just evaporated with retail. Yeah, the jeweler was left and a couple other, you know, the, the eye doctor and a couple other things, but pretty soon they were gone too. And the mall just took over everything. And then shop. So sorry, go ahead. Maybe that was, maybe that was the first retail apocalypse is, is that that change from local downtown centers to the malls. Oh yeah, definitely. That was, that was one of probably many seismic shifts in retail, but I remember that one very distinctly because my grandmother and my mom loved going to this downtown to shop and occasionally even to Chicago, but other people did that more than we did. We didn't really go into Chicago to shop very often. Um, but we would do this and then, you know, that evaporated. And of course my mom and my grandma just loved the mall. It was, it was a total entertaining experience, whether it was the food court or the bookstore or the attached movie theater. Well, I love the mall. I mean, if we're talking about our childhoods, the, uh, the mall was one of my favorite places. It was, it was fascinating. Um, it was a place where teens could h- hang out. Um, it was a place where, I mean, I remember stores that I would visit every time I went to the mall, uh, like Spencer's Gifts for one thing, you know, things like that where you just look at wacky things. I mean, I just, I, the mall was great when I was growing up. KB Toys? Sure, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, and it's funny how, you know, my kids will never experience a toy store in a mall. I mean, maybe there will be a pop-up store over Christmas, but the old toy store and walking the aisles for, Mm -hmm. you know, because my mom would just kind of dump me in the mall because she wasn't too terrified of me getting you know kidnapped and murdered. Um, so I would just wander the the toy store and wander the bookstore. And well, try apart to- from the malls too, um, I remember a, like a spe- certain feeling I would get, like an adrenaline, adrenaline rush almost, or, or a surge of emotions every time we passed a Toys R Us because uh, it was just such an experience. I just loved going into that store looking around at all the things, things that I didn't even know existed. Um, you know, we were, we were not a well-to-do family. I didn't get a lot of those toys, but just being in that environment to the extent that my parents, you know, would let me roam around in there. I mean, that was a wonderful experience and, and something I look back on fondly. And I wonder if kids today really get that. Well, particularly Toys R Us cause they're closed, but, but also just the, the experience of being amongst all of that, uh, commerce or all of those products um, that you can touch and, and, and see right in front of your eyes. Um, I get the feeling that that is at least a less of a part of, of our kids experience. You know, I think that's true, but I wonder if they get that from the video game aisle. 
my sons certainly do. Now, my daughter loves the toys because she loves looking at the dolls. But my sons in particular really do seem to enjoy um, the video game section more so than, say, the toy section. Uh, so maybe that's just different. And do you mean at like a Walmart or something? Yeah, like a Walmart or, you know, even back when Toys R Us was around. I mean, because sure. it was interesting because I never really got to go to Toys R Us as a kid. Whatever the visit to the toy store or the, the store that had toys in it was, it was always ancillary to something else. So to just go to Toys R Us just didn't happen for me. But It was if, rare for me too. But if we went to Walmart or if we went to Kmart or if you were, in fact, you you grew up in the same town I did, so Zare. Sure. Do you remember Zare? We didn't go there very much, but I do remember the Zare. I remember Zare. I remember service merchandise, I remember which we discussed last time related to underwear and lingerie and porn, ladies and gentlemen, see porn. Um, mm. And I remember, um, oh, what was that other place? God, there was a Venture. Um, Venture, yeah. I remember Venture. And these were these were all you know department stores that kind of evaporated. And when I think back to like my, my grandma, so we got a rural town in Kentucky, uh, a river town right on the Ohio River. They had a, what were those two? Uh, ben Franklin. And mm. they bought almost everything at Ben Franklin. Now, maybe they would make the drive to, um, there was a big mall in um, Carbondale, Illinois. And there was a mall in um, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Sometimes you'd go to there. But I remember when I was really, really little, before the malls opened there, too, it was, um, you know, the Ben Franklin. And we'd walk to the little downtown in the Ben Franklin. Now, the Ben Franklin evaporated, you know, 1980 or whatever. And is then, Ben Franklin, how, how big is that? Like, compared to a Walmart, how big is the Ben Franklin? I would say the Ben Franklin was about the size of a family dollar. Um, okay. You know, so what, what's that, 30,000 square feet? No, not even. 20,000 square feet? Yeah, I don't know. But, Not, but but if you say family dollar, I kind of get that. Yeah, like a like a family dollar size, except that they had everything. They had hardware, they had clothes, they had everything but food that I recall. So they had hardware, they had clothing, they had ev- electronics, and and you'd have your choice. You'd have two radios. They'd have a television or a couple of TVs behind the counter. You could get your thirteen inch black and white or your seventeen inch color. Um. These these were the things you could get. And Did it, you I, you may already know this, but um, you know Sam Walton started off with a bunch of Ben Franklins, and those basically evolved into WalMarts. No, I didn't know that. I mean, that's how he started his career. I, I read his book, so he started off with Ben Franklins, and I think he owned a bunch of them. And then he, I, I don't want to imply that Ben Franklins like became WalMarts. I think he then branched off and started doing his own thing, but. He started, he got his retail shops running Bank Franklin's. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the, those stores existed. And then, of course, the Walmarts of the world kind of pushed them out. Um, and, you know, then the malls came along. And malls have suffered, but not all of them are doing bad. You know, how many malls are there in the Chicagoland area? 20? I mean, I don't know. That sounds about right, but there used to be more. A lot. I I know a lot of malls that have that are that are ghost towns now. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the the Woodfield Mall, which is the famous one. Uh, up until the still mall, going strong. Still going strong. Um, I you can walk in there on a on a Friday or a Saturday, 
and find 100,000, well, maybe not that many, 10,000 teenage girls walking around seemingly buying nothing. Um, so I, I wonder how, I mean, but the wall, the mall's packed to the brim and people seem to be buying stuff. So maybe, maybe they are doing okay, but there's the Stratford squares. Have you been to that mall? I haven't been to that one. I mean, I've been to Charlestown, which is just dead. Charlestown is, it's sad. Yeah. It's it's actually sad. Well, Stratford square is sad. And, And these are big malls. These are malls that have five and six anchors. The J, you know, back in their heyday, the Marshall Fields, the J.C. Penney's, the Carson Perry Scotts, the Coles, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're they're just evaporating over time, and so that mall's sad. There's a mall called Spring Hill Mall, um, that Spring. I haven't been there in a while, but last time I was there, it actually wasn't doing too bad. But maybe it's changed. They're doing okay, but the funny thing is, they cut off a third of their retail space. They replaced it with a movie theater, and the movie theater's fine. But, you know, it's doing great if you say, all right, a third of what we used to be good at is gone. So now we're going to have to survive with a third less. Which I can certainly understand if that was a business move that they decided they have to make, then rock on. I, I can't argue with them on that. I mean, I mean for a while there, I, I think we're making uh, an important point here. And that is that for a while, uh, within the last 10 years or, or 20 years, maybe, it really seemed like malls were going to be extinct, that they were that they were going to just none of them were going to survive. And yet it seems like what the market has settled upon is not an extinction event, but more of a contraction. And it's consolidating uh, people's appetite for malls into a few places rather than too many. So the, the market was oversaturated with that kind of stuff. But our appetite for it is, is not gone. No, I think that's certainly true. I know my shopping habits have changed. Um, but for example, some of the stores, you know, because the, the phrase, the retail apocalypse was news this week. And so I, I want to run down a list of stores that are either going to be closing entirely or closing, you know, large numbers of stores. So the one that surprised me and, and maybe works into our theme of, you know, um, Gen X kind of versus millennial kind of thing is uh, Victoria's Secret is closing 53 stores and is actually really challenged right now. And I, I couldn't believe that when I read that, that I don't know why I couldn't believe that, but it just, that didn't occur to me. Then when I read a little bit about it, everybody said, well, you know, their lingerie is outdated. That's not what the kids today want. And the young people that are buying this. So, you know, okay, what are young people wearing? But, um, Amber Crabby and Fitch is closing stores. Charlotte Roos is closing all of their stores, 500 of them pay less, um, which I don't know if millennials Apparently they buy their shoes online or something. Payless is closing 2,500 stores. Gymboree is 800 stores. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. But that includes things like, you know, JCPenney's, which is a huge, they're just closing 19 stores that's announced right now. 19 in this area or 19 total? I I thought it was much bigger than that. Well, the prediction is much bigger over the course of the next couple of years, but it's 19 were announced this past week followed by probably more in the future. Um, but, you know, some of these big retail outlets are really in trouble. Uh, and JCPenney's is a staple. I loved Carson's. Carson's is now completely gone. They closed last year. Uh, that's where I bought all of my work clothes. Well, yeah, they were like an upscale pennies. And, yeah, that's a good way to say it. That's exactly what they were. Um, you know, Dillard's. Sorry. Well, yeah, yeah. No, no. I think we're talking, we're saying the same things here. A lot of these stores that you're mentioning are 
at least as I view them in my head, mall-based stores. Like every mall is going to have a Victoria's Secret. Every mall is going to have a Gymboree. So maybe this is a, a function of this market contraction, or maybe there's something else going on. There's, well, the, the one that everybody points to immediately is they say, well, this is people moving to on, online retail. You know, everybody uses Christmas, and online retailers were way up at Christmas, and department stores actually had a 4.6% decline. So everybody's saying, Amazon wins, everybody else loses. And I, you know, to be honest, I, I can at least talk about my purchasing habits. There's probably some truth to that. I love Amazon Prime. You're not the only one. I'm, I'm also a member, and uh, I love it as well. And, and I probably do my prim- the primarily, most of my shopping is done through Amazon Prime. And, and this is something I should probably not be proud of. And I'm not proud of it, but th- this is an example of maybe doing the wrong thing. So, for example, Best Buy. Now, people have predicted Best Buy's demise for a long time. Best Buy has certainly changed their, uh, the size of their stores. They, they're way smaller than they used to be, a third of the size of what they used to be. But I will go to Best Buy to see if I like something. And I used to do the same thing at Gander Mountain, and Gander Mountain's out of business now, too. But I'll go to Best Buy, see the TV in person, or see the computer, or see whatever it is, and then go buy it on Amazon. Now, one of the nice things is that Best Buy is pretty good about price matching. So if we're right. only talking a few dollars difference, I'll buy it at Best Buy and walk out with it. I just bought a printer at Best Buy for that. In fact, they even beat Amazon's price. Um, Amazon doesn't have the best prices anymore. I think it's more of a um, uh, retailer of convenience than it used to be um, a price leader. Yeah, I think you're right. That's my impression anyway. And with the price match, uh, you don't have to be killing Best Buy as much. And the fact that Amazon now charges tax. That used to be the big advantage. And I, as much as I hate taxes, I did see the unfairness of – and as much as I loved not paying taxes on Amazon, I saw how that was unfair to the brick-and-mortar store. So I kind of um, – there's a part of me that, that um, isn't really opposed to the fact that Amazon now charges taxes. So now there's – and I used to do the same thing you're you're referring to, uh, but now there's I, I won't hesitate to buy something at Best Buy. The problem is they often don't have it uh, if it's yeah. if it's something something you know that they and I and I get it. They can only stock at, at a store, you know the maybe the top twenty percent of selling products in any given category. But if that's not what I want, uh, I'm going to have to end up going to Amazon anyway. No, I would agree. And you know, Amazon only charges state tax. They don't actually charge the local municipal taxes. So you're only paying a fraction of the full taxes that you would pay at the retailer. And again, I, I, I do think that Amazon got it in. The, the argument that gets made is that Amazon was given an artificial, artificially, what, competitive? Art, they were artificially competitive. They were given a break in the marketplace right. for a dozen years by not having to pay taxes, they were then able to drive local retailers out of business. So by the time they do end up paying taxes, they have actually already accomplished everything they've wanted to by driving out a lot of local competition that puts them definitely in the driver's seat. And and they don't have much competition. I mean, Walmart is really trying to create their own kind of Amazon online workforce, their, their kind of marketplace, yeah. but it's, Kind of a pale comparison. 
Well, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, um, given Amazon's recent trend of, I don't know if it's a trend, but the, but my experience that Amazon is, is not the place to get the lowest price. I have been comparison shopping between Amazon and Walmart. Um, and, and I have purchased a few things, uh, through Walmart that I looked for first on Amazon because it was cheaper and uh, they're also offering the, the free shipping. So yeah. it, it, without a membership fee. Oh, really? I'll have to pay more attention to that. I think it's 25 or 35 bucks to get, I, I think if, if it's 35 bucks, you get free two day shipping. If I'm not mistaken, I don't want to be, I don't want to be talking out of school here, but that's my, I, I think there is, I think that's, I, that's correct. I know you can get free shipping. Um, and I think it might be two day if you reach a certain minimum. Well, and you know, it's funny because there's, again, so we have the retail, you have the retail apocalypse, or you have good economic times and bad economic times, but it's got long tendrils out into the community. I mentioned employment, of course, that's part of it. Um, so there's always that component, but there's also the real estate component, which as I was, again, digging into this, I, I found the real estate side of it kind of interesting because there are different kinds of retail space. There's class A, so the, the new, exciting strip mall that's got the Aeropostale in it and it's got all of, you know, the Justice and all of the great stores where all of the kids want to go. That's class A space. Then you've got, you know, the class B space that's, you know, got your Verizons in it and your mattress retailers maybe um, and some of these who, other who places. uses these Who uses these words, these classes? Uh, these are real estate terms. So if you're in like commercial real estate, these are uh, these are terms that you'd recognize. And you know when somebody says a class A uh, you know, class A real estate, you know, that's going to be high end. That's going to be something that's in demand. Class B, something that's still nice, but maybe not quite so much in demand. And then sometimes you'll hear class C or class D. And those are, those are places that are just not where the traffic is, not where the people are in disrepair, old, uh, maybe not run particularly well. Um, and so what's the point that, that we're getting more of the one kind and less of the good kind or something? Well, no, as the, as the retail market contracts. So these stores are now capable of moving. So all of a sudden in class A space, they can't demand the rents that they once had because there's too much of it. So either the retailers that are there go to the landlords and say, hey, listen, you're going to have to lower my rent or I'm going to move to another place that I think is you know more advantageous. Or when they have empty spaces, they have to then uh, rent them out less to lesser quality uh, tenants. And then of course your other tenants, your higher quality tenants say, Hey, this is bullshit. When my lease comes up, I want it reduced. But then of course that trickles down to the class B real estate, which is all of a sudden now less in demand. And then finally down into the, to the relatively bottom end of the, the commercial real estate, the commercial retail real estate where they just go vacant because, you know, if you're a bottom end, you know, if you're a smoke shop, you know, but all of a sudden you can, or a vape shop, those seem to be the, you know, du jour today. Uh, you're the vape shop. All of a sudden you can move into all of those really expensive places, get them really cheap. All of a sudden you're getting a lot more traffic. You're getting a lot more exposure. But that crappy strip mall that you were in is now empty. And then, of course, that's, you know, nobody wants to I've go into that. an empty strip mall. I've so, seen that and I've seen, I've seen a, a, a number of, um, like when a Walmart closes down, and, and I don't know if this is a, this sort of dovetails exactly the retail apocalypse, but sometimes like a Lowe's in your area or a Walmart were shut down or were moved to a different facility, and then you've got a big, huge building that's empty for a long time sometimes. 
I've got one not far from me where a Target used to be. And the Target actually moved. They didn't leave town. They just moved to a different space. But there was this enormous shopping center. And, I mean, the GNC is still there, but you know they're only there uh, until their lease is up. Yeah, there's a party city, but they're only there until their lease is up. And the second their lease is up, they're gone. And then when that happens, this entire shopping center of probably 40 you know, individual units will be almost entirely vacant. And maybe in a pre-Amazon world, you know, you'd have a Radio Shack in there and you'd have all these things uh, that could be supported, but uh, but now they can't. So, yeah, so what do we do with all this empty space? Right, and then blight, you know, because blight just kind of grows and then you'll see things like, you know, Chicago's and, and around the country, you know, TIF districts or something that's obviously not for tonight. But... Um, You'll see all of these strategies where people try to come in and revitalize dying strip centers using public funds. And in a lot of cases, they're not good investments. The public funds should not be invested in that. But people are so clinging to the idea that they need to resurrect this to bring it back to what it once was, rather than just tearing it down and saying, okay, now we have virgin space. Who wants to come in and buy this now? Mm -hmm. So... I mean, that's, I think that's something that's said a lot at the Democratic National Convention. You know, I think that will be a topic of, uh, I think that will be a topic of discussion. You know, we glossed over it a little bit, but I think it might be worth spending a couple minutes on the employment thing. And I know you, you talked about your, your friend who uh, lost his job after Toys R Us. I'm thinking about how, what was sort of, at least I viewed as kind of the rite of passage when I was growing up in terms of employment uh, I knew almost everyone that I knew worked at a mall and that was oh, like yeah. their first job. And it was how you, you know, it was a, you didn't get paid very much, but you didn't have any experience. And so it was kind of expected, right? But it was how you gained experience, how you got some spending money, how you uh, afforded car insurance or gas money. And I, and I wonder how that's different for the millennial generation. And in some ways I feel, um, some sympathy for them to the extent that that this change in the world has made it more difficult for them to to dip their toe into the working world, the, the working environment, get that experience. Well, I sold luggage uh, and I sold board games at a mall. Um, and the, believe it or not, the luggage job uh, really was great for my bag fetish. I, I got a lot of cool bags out of that job. Sure. But um that was a great job for me in college. And, you know, I didn't make much money, but it, it gave me the hours that I needed. Um, eventually, I moved out of the mall. But it was, you know, at the time, that was the place to see and be seen. And I happened to be kind of in a good niche where I was at. So I, I was able to not only study a lot uh, because I could make my sales quota in like a day. Then the rest of the week, I just ignored everybody unless they just came up and set it on the counter because I was usually alone. Um, and it was, it was a rite of passage. Um, you're building, you're building important skills, uh, not not just sales skills, but interpersonal people skills, responsibility. If you have to be here on time or you're, or you might lose your job. I mean, that's, it's, uh, there's something to be said in terms of the maturation of an individual when they become accountable to someone other than their parents or their teachers. And, you know, there's a, there's a direct uh, risk reward or work reward exchange 
you know, I'm giving you my time and my effort and I'm getting money in, ex- in you know, in exchange for this. I think it's, um, I think it's really important, or at least it was really important to me. And, and I hope that there's some way that the kids today are getting that. Well, and it's, I think it's appropriate that you mention that now, uh, you know, cause we just had that story break in the last 24 hours about this college admission scandal and college admission scandals are not a new thing. It, it, it's really only who's pocketing the money. Like you can go in and you can, you know, pay enough money to have your name put on a, a dorm room or, or on a hall, on a, a study hall or something like that. And your kid gets admitted, but you know, that's considered legal. Then what we see is when the coach gets it, that's considered illegal. And that's a scandal. And 36 people were arrested, all very affluent, wealthy people. And, you know, these are kids that, you know, didn't work. To someone, to anyone who hasn't seen this news story, why don't you just give a synopsis of, of what what's going on here? Okay, very very briefly, uh, the FBI and the Justice Department indicted. I think it was thirty six people on kind of two things. One was uh, where they would pay to have other people take their SATs for their kids in high school to raise their score to get them into the school they want to be in, or on the other side, there was a group that was actually falsifying mostly uh, athletic pedigrees for their kids and then bribing coaches to make recommendations to the admissions boards saying, hey, look, these are great athletes. I want them on my team. They would then get admitted to the school as an athlete but never actually participate in the athletics. Uh, and yeah, this is this so a big pay for play thing, and let's not hide the ball either. That uh, we're talking about some famous people. There was so Uncle Jesse's girlfriend from Full House. Oh, I had I such a crush her on her, Lori Loughlin. Uh, she's she's aging quite well still. I don't know how well she'll age in prison. <laughs> and then uh, Felicity Huffman was also involved here. So this is, um, you know, the, I think that adds some color to the uh, to the story, which is which is maybe why it's been such a story lately. Well, and I think. The, the juxtaposition of what kids used to do, and maybe affluent kids were always douchebags, but I remembered, you know, middle class, poor, and affluent kids alike working in the malls, working in the stores. I, my first gig was Pizza Hut, um, answering phones at Pizza Hut, which was a terrifying job, uh, but high pressure. So you, I've learned a lot on that. Uh, and, and these were kids that were like, now, Apparently, none of them got scholarships, so this isn't a scholarship scandal. But uh, these were kids that were getting admitted because mom and dad bought their way in. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to respectfully disagree with with your view of our our youth. Um, it, it may be true that the kids who who we thought of in our area as affluent had to get jobs. But I don't think we had any exposure growing up to what real affluence is or the kind of kids who are involved in the scandal. I don't think those kind of kids ever had to get jobs growing up. And I don't think they ever uh, had trouble getting into university. I think they've always had it had it pretty darn good. Well, I I would agree with you um, for the most part. I, w- I would say we now have more exposure to real affluence I'm not saying we're more affluent. I'm saying that we now are more aware of what truly affluent people are like through um, reality TV and things like that. But I show off on Instagram. uh, Fantastic. And that's exactly those are the kids that we're getting in. But I did have an experience with a uh, remarkably affluent young woman who worked for me in the luggage store. 
Um, quick story, then I'll be done, I promise. Um, her father worked for a movie studio, and her grandfather was a major close-to-retirement exec in Hollywood at a movie studio. And they thought that, well, her dad in particular, thought that she needed to work. She needed exposure to what it was like to actually have a job. And, and she was, I would say she was very much like some of these kids that you see today, but maybe dialed back a little bit. She wasn't quite that bad. And she was the rare Hollywood movie executive daughter living in the uh, lower middle class suburbs of Chicago. Well, um, believe it or not, her dad worked downtown and there was a division that he ran downtown that was a subsidiary of the big you know, multinational conglomerate that was the Hollywood studio that her dad had been given this job by her, by her grandfather. So he had to go run this portion of the interest of the larger company in Chicago. And gotcha. um, so it was, it was kind of interesting how all of that worked. And you know, she would bring in pictures of her and like Stallone and, and sitting in these mm -hmm. amazing cars and stuff when she would go visit her grandfather but she had to work and she was at times kind of down to earth and kind of understood things because she worked with a bunch of people that were kind of poor somewhere between middle class and, and just downright poor. And uh, it, it was probably very good for her. In fact, I wonder sometimes what happened to her. I tried to look her up on Facebook one time and I, I could, I never could find her. We I'm, all know why you looked her up on Facebook. Don't try to hide it. <laughs> no, I won't. Um, it has nothing to do with her being probably fantastically wealthy and she was hot. Which really helped. Yeah, that was that was what I was alluding to. Yeah, I know it I'm was. Glad, but I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, no, got it. Ding, ding. Hopefully she's in porn now. She doesn't need to be. No, she doesn't. She does not. But apparently they do it for fun anyway. That's why we have Instagram. Yeah, I don't know about, I don't know about our generation. Yeah, that's but true. Maybe. Yeah, no kidding. But no, th so this, this big scandal happened, and, and these kids... You know, these kids aren't learning the lessons that we learned where we had to learn, like you said, being responsible, showing up on time that, you know, what's what's was it? Charlie Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin. Somebody said 90 percent of success is showing up. And and I've always been a big believer in that. Um, and th I don't think that they're learning that. Well, that's yeah, I mean, that's what's concerning. And yet, you know, when they do get jobs. And I hate to say use the words like they, but it, you know what I mean? Not all of them, but it right. seems like when they do get jobs, uh, you see them out picketing saying, no, we want, we're not getting paid enough. It's not a living wage. I, I, and I wonder if they've lost the, or at least some of them have, have politically lost the, the idea of, of, um, gaining skills and, you know, the, not every job was ever meant or should be, um, uh, a way to support your family. Um, maybe that's what, maybe that's the way it is now. Maybe that's what jobs have to be. But at least when we were growing up, no one expected you to raise a family on, you know, luggage salesman salary. It was just a way to, and, which is, and that's, and that's the way it should be, I think, because, when you're because you, you don't need a whole lot of skills to sell luggage, it's okay to pay you less. Um, and the demand to pay more than you're worth, I think, is is going to hurt um, that generation more than they think it will help them. Well, look at the kiosks at McDonald's. 
Those things sure. are fantastic. I love those things. I can almost order faster on that now than I can if I walk up and walk right up to the counter and immediately get the person's attention. Um, and, and you can I, avoid human interaction. I can avoid human interaction, which is always a lovely thing. And, uh, hey, that's where the fight for 15 gets you. And, and, and you know, that's where the next part of the retail apocalypse is going to come from. I mean, so we, we've, we've started with our grandparents and then our parents and shopping as entertainment. And then, you know, we moved into the kind of modern era of the malls. And then as the malls kind of ebb off a little bit, and we've got this rise of this impersonal online, you know, online purchasing, online retail is the epitome of arm's length, non-interaction. And next is the non-interaction in the store, whether it's the automated lines at the grocery store, whether it's the kiosks at McDonald's. That's my favorite example is the kiosk at McDonald's because it's, it's so perfect. It's so good. And yeah. what happens, you know, coming very soon when a lot of states start adopting this $15 minimum wage and all of a sudden, you know, I wouldn't be selling luggage for 15 bucks an hour. They, that store would just close. It is closed, by the way. It, it's one of those things where they paid me six bucks an hour. And, you know, today it might be nine bucks an hour, but they're not going to pay 15. Well, you're just not worth it. No, I agree. Yeah. I'm not worth it now. Well, um, there's people think, or some people think, um, and I think a large proportion of younger generation thinks that the minimum wage is um, forcing, you know, the big bad employers to pay a decent wage. But the other side of that coin is what it's doing is preventing people whose skills are not worth less than the minimum wage, who are not, who are not worth the minimum wage from working. It's, 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 um, there's a way of looking at it, which I think is more accurate, that it's actually keeping people out of the marketplace rather than lifting them up. Yeah, I agree. And I, I can see it in, in my work. I hire, you know, we kind of bulk up in the, in the summer months and we, we pay pretty decent. We pay 12 bucks an hour and I can't fill the spots. I just can't get them. And those that do apply can't pass a drug test. Um, hmm. cause you know, they've got to use, you know, kind of not heavy equipment, but you know, theoretically dangerous equipment, any machine can be dangerous. So yeah, you, you have to take a drug test and they can't pass it. And then I, I have, you know, when I'm supposed to hire 20 or 30 people in the summer, I get two. And that's just where we are today. When I was, when I was 16, we would have filled them up and probably, you know, had double people lined up to get those jobs. Yeah. Well, and to the extent that these minimum wage laws are passed, I mean, that's only going to hasten the retail apocalypse uh, and further change the landscape uh, that we see today. Um, I, I don't know if we can avoid it. I think, it, I, but maybe, I don't know. We'll see what, we'll see what the future holds. But if it, if that does happen, I think, um, what we're seeing today is only going to accelerate. All right. Well, fantastic. I think we've actually talked a little bit. I think hopefully educated people here a little bit, hopefully had some fun with the retail apocalypse. Cause you know, next come retail zombies, maybe, I don't know. There were zombie homes. There was zombie real estate. So maybe that's next. All right. Well, I guess that's it for tonight. I want to thank everybody for coming. My name is Jack Rolf, and with me tonight is... Craig Shepard. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at, at @runningplacepod, or you can look for us, look us up on Facebook, and you'll find us there. Leave us a note. Leave us a message. Let us know what's going on, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you, folks. <laughs>